Hi there, Duncan Green here with the last roundup of 2020 of posts on from poverty to power. I'm already getting into the Christmas spirit with a, I'm munching a scone and jam when I really should be out doing some exercise and uh, just a couple more days work and then I really hope to unwind because the last few days have been very, very busy. Um, and 2021 can only be better than 2020, cling to that. Um, <clears throat> So the first post was my usual links I liked. I'll pick out a couple of things. Um, one is I've been having a few conversations re recently around divorce rates amongst immigrant women. And this is a piece of research, uh, well, a piece by Rola El Husseini, uh, arguing that many Syrian women get divorced when they move to Western countries. And I've heard this from uh, my son who works with um, the Somali community in London, that he barely ever works with a Somali woman who is not divorced. Now, there's all sorts of reasons why that may be, but uh, Rola El Husseini's um, research suggests that it's the once Syrian women come to the West, they escape from shackles of shame and stigma, as well as the patriarchy itself. So it's kind of, uh, there are fewer social pressures on you just to stay in an unhappy marriage, and therefore uh, they, they start getting itchy feet and, and, and leaving their husbands. So interesting piece of work. Then the second one was just a funny uh, tweet from Naomi Hussain. Um, uh, she tweeted uh, an advert uh, or a, a card for something called the Partnership Accelerator 2030 Agenda, um, which has as its motto, accelerating and scaling up effective partnerships for all stakeholders to deliver transformational impact for the sustainable development goals. And Naomi just says, I worked in development 25 years and I don't know what the hell this means. So um, I think that is quite a piece of development speak, and I stuck that in my links I liked. Um, got much more serious on uh, the second post, which was by uh, somebody called Hugo Slim, who I'm doing a lot of work with at the moment. Hugo was uh, a big cheese at the uh, International Committee of the Red Cross. He's now become a bit of an academic at the Blavatnik School in Oxford. Sorry, a slurp of tea. And is um, has taken to blogging like a duck to water. Um, and uh, this blog, um, which first appeared on the ODI uh, website, and I reposted it, says it's time to invest for the 21st century and repurpose humanitarian bureaucracies. Um, and what he's saying is quite interesting, which is you know, one of the ways in which COVID could be a sort of tipping point critical juncture is that it allows OECD governments potentially to switch the way they do humanitarian and become much more effective. And he thinks one of the key ways this is going to happen, well, uh, the problem he outlines is that bureaucracies have a deep self-serving bias to stay as they are. Their record on the transfer of power and resources since their 2016 commitments to localization is disgraceful. So he's looking at the fact that, you know, since 2016, the humanitarian system says, we are going to localize, we're going to put money and power into the, uh, push it down into the hands of local organizations because they are best suited to coping with modern emergencies. And it hasn't happened because bureaucracies want to keep control of the money, basically. So, But Hugo thinks he's spotted an opportunity, which is COVID-19, because what will happen with COVID-19 is that there will be a massive scaling up around the world of vaccination. And he thinks the resulting global humanitarian platform could be a precious asset and you can repurpose it. Um, and it could become the global humanitarian infrastructure of the 21st century because it's much more local, it's much more 
devolved and decentralised. And this is where OECD governments need to invest most of their billions in 2021. So not just letting the COVID infrastructure wither away once the job is done, but saying, great, now what can we use it for in terms of humanitarian? And one of the things they th he thinks that it can be used for is the climate crisis. Despite their claims, humanitarian bu bureaucracies won't play a determining role in climate action. Instead, the broad-based and community-embedded vaccination platform will, if sustained and leveraged well, become the multi-purpose network the world needs as a climate action network. But then he's also got a view on social protection. So he, he thinks the COVID-19 crisis is making it increasingly clear that social protection will be the dominant model of aid for the coming recession and climate crisis. Humanitarian assistance and protection will be a vital niche, but again, the global vaccination platform will prove a better distributive network for social protection than expensive humanitarian bureaucracies. So I think this is really dynamite. He's saying that there is this disruptive new thing being formed to deliver COVID vaccines, which could, as a spillover effect, transform the way we deal with humanitarian emergencies. Great piece of thinking. Similarly, great piece of thinking, the next post. How do norms change on fundamental issues like gender and power? And this is a, a post based on some a research paper by Caroline Harper, Rachel Marcus, Rachel George, Sophia D'Angelo and Emma Summon, published by ODI and Align. And it's a very ambitious piece of work. It's basically saying, how do gender norms change and how have they changed over the quarter century since the Beijing Women's Conference? What has supported and blocked changes to gender norms in a number of sectors? And how to ensure changes faster and robust enough to resist backlash and crisis? So this is an ambitious paper. The methodology is very sensible. They combine um, data on attitudes and outcomes, qualitative evidence from literature review, and some in-depth research on Nepal and Uganda, all very good. Um, and then the, you know, I, I sketch out the conclusions, but the bit I'll pull out is, this report identifies a general pattern of progress towards gender equality, starting with educational achievement, moving on to greater control over fertility, participation in the labor force, and finding political voice. Each shift has required gender norm change. However, progress in the short term is not linear, and even when progress towards gender equality seems to be on track, it can be halted or reversed. The report makes three important observations about the nature of norm change. First, shifts in gender norms often take a long time to develop, and progress often stalls and plateaus before moving on. Our expectations regarding the speed of change must be realistic. Second, changes in gender norms often take place at unequal speeds, with the most disadvantaged often left far behind. Attention to issues of intersectionality are vital to progress change. And third, progress often seems to stall repeatedly at the very point when women are poised to achieve significant change or power. Persistence is essential. So I think that's a very sort of wise, measured look at a massive sea change in human attitudes and norms over the last 25 years. And quite positive in many ways, as was the next post. So the fourth post of the week was, um, I got a, yeah, I get lots of emails uh, through my Oxfam channel. And this one just mentioned the Oxfam tax being uh, introduced in Argentina. So I perked up and talked to the people who sent the email and they put me in touch with Asier 
Hernando Malax Echevarria, who wrote me a blog um, uh, on Argentina introducing a wealth tax. And I, and I put in the title, could this be the start of something big? Now, a wealth tax means that anybody with uh, assets over a certain amount, in this case, $2.5 million, has to pay a certain one-off, uh, a one-off basically levy on those that wealth to pay off the costs of the COVID response. So it's not an income tax, which is on your flow of income. It's on your assets. So if you have $10 billion of assets in terms of stock, shares, property, whatever, you would pay a, a percentage of that. It's interesting to note that that is actually one of the core tenets of Islam, is that everybody in Islam should pay a wealth tax of 2.5% a year for the poor, uh, and it's called zakat. It was also a proposal by Thomas Piketty and others, um, and uh, uh, has been picked up now in Argentina. And one of the reasons it's been picked up is because of some work by Oxfam. So first of all, a bit about the tax. It's got a long mouthful of a name. The Solidarity and Extraordinary Contribution of Great Fortunes Law. And it's been approved by the Argentine Senate. It would just be levied on the 12,000 richest people in Argentina, which is a 50th of 1% of the population. Uh, and they're the ones who declared assets of more than two and a half million. Um, it would be a, um, a one-off charge of between two and five percent on individual assets, but it would raise three and a half billion dollars, so serious money. And the piece, uh, Asia points out in the piece, that windfall taxes are not a new thing. Um, they were adopted in countries like the United States, Japan, Germany and France after World War II, or Ireland with the financial crisis of 2008. Tax systems have often become more, more progressive in times of war. Income tax went up to 80% during World War I in the US, the top rate, and the top rate went to 95% in World War II. So what's the link with Oxfam? Well, um, we published a report called Quien Paga la Cuenta, Who Pays the Bill, uh, earlier in the year, which looked at the wealth of the region's super millionaires and showed that it grew by 17% in the 16 weeks from the start of the, of the pandemic by $48 billion. So basically, a small number of billionaires are coining it in the middle of the pandemic, while many other people are in extreme... You know, Latin America has been hit very, very hard by, by COVID. A lot of people are dying, a lot of people are sick, a lot of people losing their jobs. And that growth of those people's assets is equivalent to 38%, so more than a third of the total of the stimulus packages that all of the Latin American governments have put into, pre into place to respond to COVID. So because of that report, some media in Argentina are calling the new tax the Oxfam Wealth Tax. But boy, was it hard to get Assier to include that in his blog. I wanted him to say that because I think it's an interesting example of effective advocacy. Oxfam people seem to be just ridiculously modest and self-effacing. So he eventually grudgingly said and gave some links to the media where they were calling it the Oxfam Wealth Tax. Um, and pointed out that we were even name checked in the bill sent to the Argentine Senate. But he said, we'd prefer to call it the COVID solidarity tax, promoting a solidarity among Argentines that we hope will continue to inspire other countries around the world. So there we go. Yeah, I know there's a big you know, image out there that Oxfam loves blowing its own trumpet, but I tell you, it's not my experience. You have to really force them. You have to shove the trumpet into their hands and say, blow. <clears throat> Fifth, Last piece, piece of the week um, was an interesting piece by Lucy Morris and Andres Gomez, Gomez de la Torre, who I think is from Peru. And they've been taking part in a big discussion about how to decolonize 
international development and in particular INGOs. And rather than just a sort of general mea culpa, breast beating, you know, thing, they're trying to look for practical suggestions. They have a nice quote at the top. If, you're, if, if your conversation on this matter is not uncomfortable, you are not having the right conversation. I thought that's quite nice. So, yeah, they're saying recent developments around the world have rightly brought back old calls for structural change in the aid sector, including taking anti-racist action individually and as organisations. Um, and they've been taking part in a, in a series of reflections and, and seminars um, called How to Advance Anti-Racism and Decolonization in Our Own Lives and Complex Organisations. Uh, and they just reflected on key steps. I won't go into detail, uh, getting a bit over length on time, but they've got specific suggestions for people working on leadership and governance of INGOs, for people working on the programmes, you know, all the projects that INGOs run, for people working on fundraising, for people working on communications, and then a wider thought on language, you know, the kind of language we use. You know, we should stop saying words like the field, beneficiaries. You know, we have to be aware of the colonial baggage in, in, that inheres in the words we use on a daily basis. So a challenging uh, post, got a lot of hits uh, that last post, um, got a bit of pushback from some people who thought it was wrong. And that's exactly what blogs should do, I think, uh, provoke and get people thinking. And on that note, have a great weekend. I probably won't do another one of these until next year. So have a fantastic break if you're taking a break. If not, see you in 2021. Bye.